tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Just talking the voice in my head about normal, and you remember the old saying that normal is just a setting on the dryer. Well, with that thought, let's pray. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit. They shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same Spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God cast into hell, Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, well, let's go to the big book on the coffee table. You know the one? The Bible. I want to just look at Saturday's reading. Um, uh, uh, you know, just because it's interesting, and I, I really need its thing. It's it's neat. It's the song for Saul and Jonathan who were killed. Now it's very interesting. They don't really go into this, but this is worth going into. It's Second Samuel, first chapter, and of course it's much abbreviated. But um, the uh, um, uh, the 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 remember remember Saul didn't didn't obey God regarding the Amalekites. He did not put them under the ban. All right. So if you read the whole chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 1, uh, which is where we are, after the death of Saul, uh, David returned from his victory over the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag two days. Okay. But on the third day, a man came to the field of battle, uh, the the um, one of Saul's people. And David asked him, where have you come from? He replied, from the Israelite camp I have escaped. David told me what happened. Uh, the soldiers had fled in battle. Many of them were fallen and dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan were dead. How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? The youth reporting to him said, I happened to find myself on Mount Gilboa and saw Saul leaning on his spear with chariots and horsemen closing in on him. He turned around and saw me and called me to him and said, here I am. And when I said, here I am, he asked, who are you? He replied, an Amalekite. Then he said to the man, stand over me, please. Put me to death, for I am in great suffering, but I still live. In other words, Saul was trying to commit suicide, and he couldn't do it. So I stood over and put him to death, for I knew he could not survive his wound. I removed the crown from his head and the armlet from his arm and brought them here to my Lord. David seized his garments and tore them all. And then he mourned uh, that... that uh, song of mourning for uh, for Saul and Jonathan. David said to the youth who had reported to him, Where are you from? He said, I'm the son of a resident alien and the Amalekite. David said to him, How is it that you are not afraid to put forth your hand 
to desecrate the Lord's anointed. David then called one of his attendants and said to him, Come, strike him down. So he struck him, and he died. David said, Your blood is on your own head. You testified against yourself, for I put the Lord's anointed to death. To me, this is a very, very interesting reading. Um, and, and there's a symbolism here uh, that... that um, uh, Saul failed to to root out the Amalekites, and it was an Amalekite who killed him. Now, Saul was complicit in his own suicide, um, and and um, you know, this is a, there's no way to make this the whole chapter look good. Saul's trying to commit suicide, uh, an Amalekite ends up killing him at Saul's own request, and then David kills the Amalekite for having. Uh, violated the Lord for having uh, touched the Lord's anointed. And uh, it's it's all kind of, it's not what we would say uh, is neat and tidy, but there you go. It's, it's the real thing. So, all right, where were we? Okay, let's get back to this uh, memorial of St. Francis de Sales. All right, so that's the story of uh, the death of... Um, of Saul and Jonathan that we see on Saturday. Oh, there's one more thing I wanted to look at on on, on Saturday's reading, because you don't get a lot of sermons on this particular reading. Uh, the the uh, um, it, of course, was the day of prayer for protection of the unborn, uh, uh, legal protection of the unborn. And this is most appropriate, because think people think we're crazy to worry about it. Well, no, we're not. They're crazy to do it. All right. Uh, this is Mark, the third chapter. Again, this is Saturday's reading. Jesus came with his disciples into the house. Again, the crowd gathered, making it impossible for them to even eat. Uh, when his relatives heard of this, they set out to seize him, for they said, he's out of his mind. I, how many sermons do you ever hear about Jesus uh, being, being uh, considered crazy by his family? But that's in the Bible, the big book on the coffee table. And Sanity seems crazy to the insane. I think that that uh, that's something we need to remember. That that uh, the world says we're nuts. Well, that's because the world is nuts. Uh, uh, mental health. Uh, you know, Sigmund Freud. This old song of Sigmund Freud. How we wish we had been differently employed. But um, I think Freud did a good job of describing sanity. It is the ability to love and work. And um, I think that that we are in a society that mistakes lo narcissism for love and uh, and uh, wealth for work. But enough said. Let's go to today's readings finally. But because today's readings, there's a lot more to talk about in today's readings than we've talked about. Uh, we we see the uh, the um, lament for Saul and Jonathan. And uh, David is deeply saddened by the death of someone who was his enemy. And uh, <clears throat> he is uh, made king over uh, his own people, the tribe of Judah. And then they come to him uh, uh, after a period uh, after the death of Saul. And he says, they say to him, we want you to be king over all of Israel. So the king and his men set out for Jerusalem against the Jebusites. Now, Jerusalem 
as the psalm says, is a, a city strongly compact. It it was built uh, as a, really a small town. If it had 10,000 people in it, that would have been plenty. I mean, it was t- small. And it was perched on a ridge, uh, a mountain ridge, that could only be approached by one side. It was sort of a triangular shape. And that triangular shape is still there. It's much filled in because... Uh, uh, things, <laughs> people tend to throw garbage out and it goes downhill. And, uh, well, the valleys on either side of the city of David have pretty much filled up with, uh, you know, thousands of years of, well, detritus. That's a fancy word meaning garbage. But it's still a formidable uh, hill. The, 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 the two sides of this, it's a, a triang- triangular, a sharp triangle, and two sides are very steep. And there's a good water source on the eastern, at the foot, almost at the foot of the eastern slope. And the only area that has to be really defended is the northern end. Uh, so, and that had a high uh, threshing floor on it, the threshing floor of a round of the Jebusite. So, um, they thought they'd never uh, capture it. And so, uh, um, they taunted him that the blind and the lame uh, will drive you away. Well... David did manage to take it. He had somebody, it's very hard to understand, crawl up the water pipe. To this day, archaeologists don't know what that means, but someone snuck into Jerusalem, opened the gates, and Jerusalem was theirs. All right, uh, so let's move on to the gospel, because this is the one that people are most interested in. The scribes who had come from Jerusalem said of Jesus, he is possessed by Beelzebul. Oh, I've always heard it was Beelzebub. This is a kind of well. Let me let me get this. Uh, Baal is is a Canaanite word, a Semitic word. Um, hold on. Let me pull this up. Uh, is a Canaanite word uh, meaning lord or master. Uh, um, uh, <laughs> very interestingly, the word. Uh, 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 landlord is Balabos, which means Lord of the House. Uh, landlord, I, that's that's on the side. But the word Baal is commonly used in the Bible. It just means Lord uh, uh, or owner. And the word Baalzebub means Lord of the Flies. Um, th- it was probably a Philistine god and the fly cult. Flies were associated with death because, well, dead bodies attack uh, 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 flies. So that's that's kind of where it comes from. But what's this Belzebul stuff? Well, uh, it, it's uh, hold on. Let me. I gotta uh, let me pull that up. Let me see. It's it's a it's it's just a, a linguistic variation. Uh, let me see. Uh, Hold on, hold on. Good radio here, isn't it? Um, uh, it, it it's that is probably a name, uh, a god name of another place, Zebul. Now I think it's very important to understand that that the ancient gods were not just uh, um, um, they're not just figments. The early Christians believed they were demons. Uh, Belzebul uh, is is a is the name of a, a one of these gods. 
Uh, Zebul is probably a place name. Uh, so uh, um, that's that's most probably what what it means. And and it's it's they were thought of as being uh, uh, demons. So uh, that's why one is Belzebub. That literally means uh, Lord of the Flies. As as far as I understand, I mean uh, uh, the the uh, uh, let's see here in Second Kings the ungodly Israelite king Ahaziah son of Ahab had injured himself uh, severely and sent messengers to inquire of Baal Zebub this this Lord of the Flies uh, who was this god of a place so Belzebul is probably uh, a variation of the name of the Philist the Philistine god of Ekron. So, they're god names. Okay, I've expended enough hemming and hawing on that, so let's go back to the reading. Summoning them, he began to speak in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? This is a very difficult thing. A lot of people make a big deal about the strong man. Who is the strong man? No one can enter a strong man's house to plunder his property unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he segues into this this business about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. People come up to me and say, Father, I think I've committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and I cannot be forgiven. All right, let's all calm down here. There is no sin that God is not willing, ready, and able to forgive. However, there are some sins that we must begin the process of forgiveness in our own life. Remember what the word to forgive means. It means to let go. That's what it means. That's apohiemi and aphiemi in Greek. It means to let go. That's all it does. And when I let something go, I let it go. You know, yeah, I know you owe me a thousand dollars and uh, an apology, but nah, let it go. That's to forgive. Well, let's just, you know, that's just enabling behavior. That's just, no, it's forgiveness. Now, what does it mean that there are certain things that cannot be forgiven? How often do I tell you that we have a humble God who will not force us to be happy? He gives us free will. And I am capable of tying up God. Huh? This is going to be a weird interpret interpretation. Uh, um, that that the strong man here is God. That's how I would interpret this. Not the devil and not me. I am now. This is I may be wrong about this. Take it with a lot of grains of salt. But I'm capable of tying up God. You know, in in a lot of traditional representations of the crucifixion, Jesus is shown as both nailed and tied to the cross. Uh, and that's an old tradition. But the idea that, that I could bind God's hand with a nail or with rope or with both, if Jesus is who we claim him to be, that's rather amazing. That God has humbled himself in such a way that human beings can tie him down. And I can tie him down in my life. The sin against the spirit in traditional spiritual spirituality is uh, is despair and its flip side presumption. These people had said that it's by uh, the prince of demons that he drives out demons. And so he's saying that's a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What is it? Well, blasphemy, that means to just to say it's nothing. Well, 
when I look at something that God is doing and say, oh, don't be ridiculous, that's nothing. I put myself beyond the work of God. You know, if, if, if some prophet comes up to me and says, thus says the Lord, and this is a, a real prophet, not just some self-styled uh, kibitzer, but thus says the Lord, and I say, oh, don't be ridiculous. Or someone says, I've been praying for you, and I really think you need to think about that. Oh, don't be ridiculous. Well, if it is the Holy Spirit, then I've just said to the Holy Spirit, go away. Presumption and despair do the same thing. That presumption is saying that I don't need God's forgiveness. God needs my forgiveness. I mean, after all, didn't he cause the Holocaust? Didn't he cause, the, cause this? Look at the church. Uh, look at the, the clergy. Look at this. Look at that. It's just, you know, well, if God were God, he'd do something about this. If God were God, he'd make me happy. If God were God, he'd give me what I want. That's presumption. It it makes us the judges of God. And then there's despair, which is the flip side of that coin. My sin is too big for God to forgive. <laughs> really? So when I am in a, put myself in a position in which I, I refuse to ask God for forgiveness, he says, okay, you're the only one who can let that go. If you let go, okay, I, I've shared this with you before, but this is a trick which I would suggest don't use it, but I'm going to teach you how to catch monkeys. Are you ready? Take notes. What you do is you get a big, heavy, narrow-necked jar, and you put something, put some stones in the bottom to weigh it down so it's good and heavy. And then you put something in that monkeys like, like fruit or bananas or something that uh, really monkeys go for. And that monkey is going to come along and look in the jar and realize there's something there they want, and they're going to put their hand in that jar and grab a fistful of whatever it is that they're trying to get and they can't get their hand out of the jar. And they won't let go of what they're holding. And then all you do is come around the, the bush, uh, from the bush you're hiding behind with your monkey whapper, and bop the monkey on the head. You got a monkey. I don't know why you want one. They bite. But uh, that's how you catch them. And that's how the devil catches me. He, he offers me something that I will not let go of. To let go is to forgive. I will not forgive. I will not let go of this. I will not let go of my anger at God. I will not let go of the belief that my sin is bigger than God. I will not let go of the bitterness I have against other people. And so I drag that heavy jar behind me and the devil, he's got me. He doesn't even have to run fast. You see, to bind the strong man, I do that. I tie up God. And this is my interpretation of it. And I may be wrong about this. Or it may bear a thousand other interpretations. But it is amazing to me that I, as a, a weak and sinful human being, by my very sinfulness, can tie up God. And in a sense, I have to let God go. I have to untie God so that he can do in my life what he wants to do. I have to give, I have to give God permission. Imagine that. I am mortal, a sinful man. I'm saying I got to give God permission to forgive my sins. I have to give God permission to change my life. I've got to give God permission to work his grace in me that I might become the image of his son in the world. So this binding the strong man, I don't think uh, 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 
you know, uh, I don't think that's the devil. I don't think that's me. I think it's God. And I'm the one who does the tying up by my blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, by my refusing to recognize God moving in the world and in my life. And I say, nah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not interested in that. Too much religion isn't, isn't such a good thing. I, I want to hold on to what I got. Well, hold on to it. To forgive is to let go. And uh, if you refuse to let go, then God will not force you to do so. Thus, the sin is in that sense unletgoable, <laughs> unforgivable, unletgoable. Don't go there. All right, we're going to go to a break. We will open the phones at 888-914-9149. Let me give you that number again, and don't wait till the end of the show, because then I will give you the the indigent rush, he said, being trying to be more politically correct. 888-914-9149. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. That's a great song. Oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. And ain't it the truth? Not only do we have a friend, but we have a Lord. And um, that's a, a neat thing to have a Lord because um, sometimes you need somebody to tell you, go that way, not that way. At least I do. Well, let's, speaking of going, let's go to letters. This is uh, from from John. <laughs> Your topic on prayer reminded me of one of my favorite quotations from Markings by Dag Hammarskjöld. Dag Hammarskjöld was the uh, uh, the uh, president of the United Nations, or the chairman, I think, is, was, is the proper term, of the United Nations, years ago when I was a kid. Your cravings as a human animal do not become prayer just because it is God whom you ask to attend to them. That's a great line. In other words, give me, give me, give me, I want... Uh, um, Prayer is is uh, best defined as the raising of the heart and mind to God, not the raising of the desires to God. Leave the desires to the Lord. He'll take care of them. You allow the Holy Spirit to raise your heart and your mind to the beauty of God. And as Scripture says, seek first the kingdom of God. God's royal nature, as I'm always saying. Seek God's nature and all else will be added to you. So thanks, John. That is a great quote. Okay, <clears throat> this is... Um, Oh, thank you. I wanted, I've got a few things I want to read from Dan, but I was looking for that verse about there's nothing bad that God made in the world. Wisdom, 114. Wisdom, uh, one of the Catholic books. Uh, he created all things that they might be, and he made nations of the earth for health. There's no poison of destruction in them, nor kingdom of hell upon earth. And it can be translated, this is the... Uh, New, what's the NAB? I can never, uh, New American Bible, that's it. For He fashioned all things that they might have being, and the creatures of the world are wholesome. There's not a destructive drug among them, nor any domain of Hades on earth. That's Wisdom 114, when people are talking about, should I take medicine? 
Mm, yeah, especially if the doctor prescribes it. Uh, don't don't take unprescribed stuff. Not good. And this is from the same Dan. Um, not to see how much I can get away with, but to know when I should get to confession before receiving the Holy Eucharist. Well, it would you know the, the, this is a very difficult and something I don't fully understand. The 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 the, the seven deadly sins, the capital sins, pride, anger. Um, lust, uh, avarice, gluttony, envy, and sloth. Uh, those are considered the seven deadly sins, and they are not necessarily um, mortal sins, but they are vices, and they they weaken uh, our ability to res resist the devil. So, if you have a problem with lust, yeah, do confess it. Problem with anger, problem with gluttony, always confess them. I would say that anger becomes a mortal sin when it results in violence. I think doing is very important. You have to commit a sin. And um, if you can have violence that doesn't actually hit someone, um, you know, extreme uh, mental abuse of someone, I think uh, can be a mortal sin. Uh, at what point it crosses over the line, I would say, when you do intentional violence to someone. Um, Thou shalt not kill is clearly a commandment. And when you kill someone's spirit, uh, that's, that's it's not unrelated. Um, at what point it becomes a mortal sin, uh, it would have to be, I think, uh, clear acting out. In other words, at what point does lust become a mortal sin? It's when we indulge in a fantasy willingly, uh, that even that can be a mortal sin, or when we act out on that desire, or gluttony. Um, when would gluttony be? When we endanger our own health, it's it's clearly a sin. And, and um, I, you'd have to speak to a better moral theologian than me about when do these things like anger and gluttony and sloth, when did they become mortal sins? I would say when they begin to endanger life, that's that's when you're in trouble and gluttony can do that so uh, we never think about the sin of gluttony it's you know we the clergy it's kind of one of our favorite sins there's a saying you know on the road eat where truck drivers eat no don't bother to do that the truck drivers are in a hurry look where lawyers and priests eat they, they like to eat well i'm just kidding just kidding yeah right all right let's see i've got another letter here um this is somebody uh um uh, this is Anna, who uh, um, says that the story of Saul stirred her very much. Um, um, that, that especially the idea that Saul didn't know he was sinning. I must then be blind with the same vanity. Um, I think Anna, the 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 remedy for this is when you say, Lord. Uh, Two prayers. Let me recommend two prayers. One is from the psalm, Lord, oh, I should look it up. From my unknown sin, release me, Lord. Let me let me find that for you, Anna. From my unknown sin. Okay, we press the little button and it will come up. Um, uh, okay, they talk about it. Um, uh, in Leviticus 5.17, but Psalm 19, verse 12, uh, who can discern his own uh, faults? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Keep your servant from willful sins. You know, so a good psalm to pray is Psalm 19 in this context. 
Uh, and and just remember that 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 the minute that you Saint Augustine said to want to go is to go. In other words, Lord, I I don't even know my own sins. Teach me your ways, O oh Lord. Uh, that's got to be my favorite prayer as a Christian. Lord, instead of Lord, give me what I want, which is usually where I pray. Lord, uh, teach me your ways, O oh Lord. Um, and then there's also that beautiful prayer that we used to say as part of the Stations of the Cross. Grant that I may love you always and then do with me what you will. So those are just a few recommendations for prayers to to help you realize that as you realize your own sinfulness, well, that's a great step forward in sanctity. The saints all thought they were terrible sinners. I'm not such a bad sinner. That's because I'm not much of a saint. So uh, I'm kidding, of course. I I'm, I think I'm getting saintlier because as I get older, I realize I'm I'm quite a sinner. All right, but that's an interesting thing about the saints is that they seem never to think of themselves as saints. And you know, they're right. They're sinners saved by grace. They're just really, really appreciative of it. All right. Now we've got one from, um, this is from, um, who's it from? It's from Richard in Albuquerque, lovely town. Father, the person on the shroud must have been a bloody mess to leave such an imprint on the cloth. I thought the women at the tomb cleaned Jesus before covering him, thus no imprint. Now, Rick, you got to understand that the Jews believed if you died, and they still do, if you die a violent death, you must be buried with as much of your death blood as possible uh, because then the Messiah couldn't raise you from the dead. It's not a biblical belief, but it's, it's, a, it's a belief among Orthodox Jews. <clears throat> and so any cloths that were involved in the burial of Christ would have been buried with him. Uh, we read about the cloth which was on his uh, covered his face that that most scholars think of that as the the face cloth of Oviedo that uh, in Spain that uh, uh, it would have been pinned on Christ as he was taken from the cross to to hide his face it's just you know we pull the blanket over the corpse same deal um, so the the there's a, a movie, the face, uh, uh, the real face of Christ, I think, and it's some grand Hollywood producer who has a very odd kind of comb over, but he does good work nonetheless. Um, but he's developed a technique that can lift the blood from the image of the shroud, and you just see the blood, and he, he just shakes his head, and he said, they beat this fellow to a pulp. Yeah, it was a bloody mess. And uh, um, remember, his body was hanging on the cross for a bit, and that blood would have dried in the in the in the dry air of of uh, a subtropical climate, and so it was still there. Now, the most interesting thing about the shroud is the nature of the marks on the shroud. Uh, they have only recently developed a plausible theory of what caused them: an extremely intense extremely brief within like four hundred thousandth of a second sort of thing extremely brief extremely intense burst of light we don't have enough lasers in the world at this point to 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 reproduce the shroud if we could i mean it's an irreproducible image and any any longer duration or, or the cloth would have gone up in a puff of smoke but it was just this this micro burst of of intense radiant energy the interesting thing is that where there are blood marks on the shroud, there is no um, 
you know, it, well, this 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 intense light caused, I, I believe, an oxidation and dehydration of linen fibers. I think that's the chemical substance that makes the image. There's no paint. Um, the dehydration and oxidation of the linen fibers due to this intense burst of light. That is that is what it is thought that the marks are chemically. But very interestingly, this was so brief and so intense that where there are blood marks on the shroud, there's no image under them. In other words, that light was so intense and brief, it didn't penetrate through the blood on the shroud. So a forger would have had to put all the blood marks on the shroud and then put the image on after. It's ridiculous. Impossible. We, we, we cannot do it with our technology now. So, um, the, the, yes, you're right. It is a bloody mess. And the women would not have tried to take all the blood off the body. Maybe they did stanch some of it up, but uh, they would not have washed the body with water. We see that in, uh, in art, but most probably that would not have happened because of the need to bury a body that had died violently with all the blood possible. You'll see that in Jerusalem. If there's a bomb or something that goes off, uh, the devout will be there with with uh, cloths trying to soak up as much blood as possible. It's a little grisly. So I hope that helps a little interesting thing. Well, we're going to go to a break. We will come back with a word of the day. And uh, then we will uh, take phone calls at 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. We'll be right back. To sin no more Let me walk on sacred ground Today we'd like to thank Domingo, who's listening in California, for donating his BMW. Join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles by visiting relevantradio.com slash car today. I'll be waiting on the far side banks of Jordan. I'll be sitting All right. We're back. And it's time to go to the word of the day. I want to go back and grind that axe about the strong men. No one, and let's look at it. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Satan has risen up against himself and is divided. He cannot stand. That's the end of him. But no one can enter a strong man's house to plunder his property unless he first ties up the strong man. When you see that, you know, maybe this isn't real high on your agenda, but from my days in Pentecostal prayer groups, this was a big thing. And uh, I think it is a big thing. What? Who is the strong man? There were whole books written on who is the strong man. Well, we say if Satan's risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. That's the end of him. But, in other words, moving along here, no one can enter a strong man's house uh, uh, unless he first ties up the strong man. Satan is done. However, <laughs> that's the but. I think that Jesus is saying we can give the devil a second wind if we want. Uh, no one, even especially if if his kingdom is divided, if his if his royal if his satanic royalness is divided up, you know, he he's weak unless we give him strength, unless he first ties up the strong man, you know. No one can enter a strong man's house to plunder. Well, the word strong in the text 
very interestingly is iskiros hagios hotheos hagios thanatos hagios iskiros no what is it the greek the greek prayer holy we say in the divine mercy devotion hagios hotheos hagios iskiros hagios thanatos eleison himas Hagios Iskiros, holy and strong, holy immortal one. So God is the strong man in that prayer, and so I really do believe that uh, that that Satan is utterly defeated unless we're stupid enough to tie God up, <laughs> and we're we're the dwelling place of God. Uh, we are the house of God. We are the temple of God. And uh, when we practice division and when we tie up God by our fights and our feuds, we give the devil a second wind. So let us untie God, untie the Holy Spirit, and let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives and in our church. All right. That said, let us go to phones, 888-914-9149. Yes, it is. Whom do we have? Linda from Orlando, where it's warm. How are you, Linda? I heard it was down to 43 there the other day. Yeah, it was. Oh, <laughs> I got gosh, a damn yeah. comforter and God keeps me warm. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, that was cold yeah. in Florida. But it's, it's tomorrow night here, it's supposed to be 17 below. <sighs> okay, what can I do for you? <laughs> well, I have a very dear girlfriend. And her name is... Um, I'm not going to say, just in case she's That's listening, right. okay? Sure. <laughs> okay. Um, she was a baptized Catholic. Mm-hmm. She has an unfortunate situation at one of the churches in Long Island, okay? Mm-hmm. And she didn't have the tools to really deal with it in a very reasonable way. So mm-hmm. instead, she just leaves the church. In the mm-hmm. meantime, she marries a Lutheran minister. Mm-hmm. Now, I should tell you that she's a wonderful person, and mm-hmm. she's generous, she's warm, she's kind. Um, she won't even work on Sundays where she could. She does not mm-hmm. work on Sundays. But she marries a Lutheran minister and becomes a Lutheran. He has mm-hmm. since they were married 15 years, and he died. Mm-hmm. She, um, now, I would like to bring her back to the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. And so I'm interested, you know, I had an idea, oh, I'll invite her to Mass. That's, um, I think it's too early to do that, and I will. Sure. I was. The idea I had, and maybe you know a little bit more, I guess I should Google the Lutheran faith, um, is um, maybe invite her over to my house for um, to read something in the uh, gospel or, you know, something and discuss it. Um, but what would you suggest? Because I want to be gentle about it. Sure, sure. Now, how long ago did her husband die? A year and a half ago. A year and a half ago. So she is, well, I mean, it's it's silly to say this. She's still hurting. She's going to be hurting for the rest of her life if, if this was a good and, and holy man she married. You know, people mistake the church for weak and sinful people like me. 
the church is not the clergy. To me, the strongest part of the church is the communion of saints. And what I would do is I would find her of something very beautiful. You might have to do a little research yourself. Um, and the name that's coming to my mind is St. Teresa of Lisieux, the Little Flower. She wrote some beautiful things. You give her a book and say, I read this and I was thinking of you um, and, and you know, fill in husband's name. And I thought you might enjoy it. Um, introduce her back to the church, uh, not not uh, through the Gospels. She knows the Gospels. Um, if she's a good Lutheran, she certainly does. Not through the clergy, because, well, we can often be very disappointing. But the communion of saints, that's what I would look at. The, those, the, the church is, is, to me, the, the summit of the church is that communion of saints. And not just the wonderful intercession of the saints, but the beautiful things they wrote. Or, or you could even, uh, Malcolm Muggeridge wrote a book, Something Beautiful Forgot About Mother Teresa. That might be a mother, uh, uh, a different St. Teresa, but Mother Teresa of Calcutta. That might be a beautiful thing. So I would, I would start with myself and I would, I would find some beautiful writings of, of the saints and then find one that's particularly appropriate for her. And, you know, just, you know, let her, let her remember what the church really is not 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 uh just this era but but uh, that communion does that help a little yeah i think that helps a little because i i want to gently you know i think this is going to take time and mm -hmm, it's because sure. i told her about relevant radio but mm -hmm. um but we walk together a lot sure. and so i thought I could, you know, and I had them over for New Year's Eve, and we celebrate together. I have dinner parties, yeah. and she's invited. Sure. Um, yeah. So I, think I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't of, try to. Um, I wouldn't try to convince her about an organization. I would try to convince her about a communion. You see that 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 to convince her about the beauty of Christ expressed in the beauty of the saints. You know, that then introduce her to the real church. <laughs> I think that that might be a help. So thanks for calling in, and uh, I will be praying for your friend. And uh, wise to keep it anonymous, but I will certainly remember her at Mass. What can I do for who, where, what? Who's, who we got next? What? Catherine from California, also where it's warm. <sighs> Catherine, yeah, what can I do I'm for honored. you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, this is a, a question about a friend, too, a neighbor who um, I know she was uh, born and raised Catholic, but um, she doesn't go to church anymore. Sometimes mm -hmm. on Good Friday, I see her, she turns up. And I'm wondering if it's because she's divorced. Um, I don't know uh, the situation, but I want to be able to give her the right information. Uh, mm -hmm. If she was married in the church mm -hmm. and then divorced, but never remarried. Is she allowed to go to the sacraments? Yes, she could make a perfectly good confession and then go to Holy Communion. Yes. Okay. Okay. That, it's no because problem. She, but if she had remarried, that would be the problem. That would be different. Yeah. Then she would be in a in a having relations with a man who is not her husband. Uh, but she's not, and. Uh, um, so she's certainly able to go to confession and communion, but she should go to confession first, and it might might be a real blessing to her. So does that help? Okay, that helps a lot. I, I I've been you know approaching some things, and 
I just wanted to have the information because yeah. I thought maybe that's what's holding her back, yeah. you know. Yeah, well, if that's yeah. what it is, then she's right. welcome to come home to the Eucharist. Well, thanks for calling in and thanks for listening. Whom do we have now, dear voice, in my head? Ryan from Browerville, Minnesota, where it's probably colder yes. than here. What can I do for you, Brian? Hi, Father Simon. Thanks for taking my call. I love your Happy show. To do so. I really well, appreciate you. the insights you share and your sense of humor. So I'm wondering if you would please share your insights about where and how the church got her authority and how that authority has been passed down since the time of the apostles. Well, it, from from Jesus, <laughs> the scriptures are clear. Jesus, uh, we just had that the other day in the readings. Jesus chose twelve of his disciples, whom he also named apostles, um, that that he gave them authority. And then he confirms that authority at the Last Supper when he says, "I pray for not only these, but for those who will believe because of them." And we have you have to remember that we are a, a three part being. Uh, St. Paul talks about body, soul, and spirit. And the way I sort of have figured, uh, deal with that myself is we are immortal spirits who manifest in a an immortal soul and in a mortal body. That's as close as I I may be wrong about that. But all three of those realities are important. So God speaks to our spirit through our soul and through our body. And the... The, there's a Jewish custom called the laying on of hands, ordination. You were, or a sacrifice was ordained. They would lay hands on a, an animal that was to be sacrificed, and elders were ordained. And the early Christians continued that, setting people apart. We see that, that people, St. Paul and Barnabas, were set apart with the laying on of hands. Because, you see, the devil sees all of history. And he can see the chain, the physical chain that ties me to Cardinal Cody, who ordained me, who, to the bishop who consecrated Cardinal Cody, to the bishop who consecrated him, and so on, all the way back to Christ. So the whole person is ministered to body, soul, and spirit. Uh, and and this, this is what we call the apostolic succession. And it was, it was a, an authorization to continue that work that Jesus gave the disciples and um, and we believe they gave us. Does that answer the question? It does. Thank you very much, Father Simon. Well, good. Then thanks for listening, Brian. God bless. And stay warm. Whom do we have now, dear voice, in my head? Ed from Riverside, California. All these warm people. Ed, what can I do for you? <laughs> yeah, I'm in a t my heavy T-shirt today, Father. I don't know what we can oh, do. Oh, <laughs> chilly there. Must be at least 70, huh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, yeah, <laughs> a little little higher than that. Question <laughs> oh, for you. Uh, something that's yes. been bugging me for a little bit. I Trying to figure the chronology from the Nativity. And yes. I believe, I'm assuming at the Nativity, which of course happened right before they got to Jerusalem, did they then go from there up to the presentation in Jerusalem, because they needed to go to Jerusalem anyway, but the second question I have is approximate timing between the Nativity, and we know that the, the Magi came and visited at that time and gave them the gifts of frankincense, myrrh, mm -hmm. gold. Yes. Okay? Yes. So they go up to Jerusalem. Did they go back to Nazareth, and how long was it before the angel told Joseph to pack up and get out? Well, the problem is that that ancient history was not so much interested in chronology as meaning. Um, 
I have a theory about the Gospels, that Mark was written to show the divinity of Christ. And Matthew was shown, was written to show that Jesus was the fulfillment of prophecy. And Luke and the book of, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, both written by the same man and addressed to your excellency Theophilus, who, according to Dr. Brent Pitry, and I think this makes great sense, was actually one of the high priests, one of the sons of Annas, of the family that controlled the temple. So each book was written with a specific purpose in the mind of its human author. Luke and Acts was a legal defense of Paul and Jesus, in a sense. And so they're not going to mention things. Luke is not, you know, my mother, who was wonderfully wise, said, Richard, you must never lie, but you don't have to tell everyone everything at once. Smart woman. Well, you know, that, that Luke is not going to stress those things which appear to make Jesus um, uh, a rebel against the Romans. The Herod family was fist in glove with the Romans. And so that incident about the Magi sneaking off on Herod, that wouldn't have been in the Gospel of Luke, whereas it is in the Gospel of Matthew because it's a fulfillment of prophecy. So uh, they're not so concerned about a chronology. And I, I genuinely believe all of these things are historical. Uh, the Bible, uh, the New Testament Gospels are not written to be histories, but their material is historical. So what Jesus was, I'm beginning to think Jesus actually may have been born on December 25th of the year 1 BC uh, and circumcised right on day one of of the year one. Uh, that that would be a hard and fast date. He was circumcised, wasn't circumcised necessarily in the temple. Then within 40 days, he would have been presented in the temple. And at that point, I think, and Bethlehem is just five miles from Jerusalem, and probably they would have stayed in, in Bethlehem, or they may have stayed in Jerusalem, because that's where Mary's uh, parents, uh, according to tradition, had a house. And the the uh, the Magi would have come after that, uh, after, I think after the uh, um, presentation of the temple and Mary's purification, and... Uh, then they would have left. <coughs> then they went back up to Nazareth only after they had returned, after what must have been a space of years uh, when Herod was dead, uh, they returned to Nazareth. So that would be the probable chronology, including all those events. But each of those events was recorded in the scriptures, not so much to ascertain what we think of as a history, as the meaning of the events that everybody knew had happened. Does that help? It does, but let me tell you where I'm going with this. And um, you talk about your grain of salt. This is probably about a cupful. But my question <laughs> to you would be: with the gifts of the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, yes, what did they what did they do with them? Oh, I'm sure they kept them for a rainy day. Traveling isn't cheap. So, and there's speaking of traveling not being cheap. There's music in my head. So, I, if if I haven't answered the question well enough, call again, and I'll 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 try to get to it as soon as possible in the in the call-in section. But don't that doesn't mean you should go away. You should hang on because Drew's coming up and he answers questions wonderfully. <laughs> <laughs> 